0: Giving can be instrumental in a variety of different ways. Giving actually feels good in the brain. And if you just think about giving a gift to a friend, it activates a particular part of the brain that processes rewarding experiences.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. As we head into the holiday season and we're trying to find the perfect gifts for our family and friends... I wanted to think about why giving gifts during this time of year makes us feel good in the first place. So today I'm excited to have a good friend of politicology, Professor Catherine Sanderson, back on the show to talk about this. Catherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University, and she is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's also the author of The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. She was on the show back on March 10th on an episode called Becoming Moral Rebels and about when and why we act in defiance of our peer group. Catherine, it's so great to see you again. I should say I'm happy to see you again. Thank you for making the time and welcome back to Politicology.
0: Well, I'm so looking forward to this very timely conversation.
1: So we actually decided to have this conversation after I shared an article from The Atlantic on my Instagram story. Zaki, the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory, was arguing that we should focus on other care, not just self-care, as a bomb for late pandemic malaise. And I think... You know, intuitively, we assume that spending energy and attention on ourselves will make us happier. There's a very strong trend now towards self-care. It's becoming more normalized and encouraged in in popular culture. And I want to spend a time talking about that. But before we do, the word happiness needs a little bit of unpacking. So we think we know what we mean when we say happiness and whether or not we're feeling happy. But can you sort of take us beneath the surface? Of the body of literature and psychology around happiness, and, and 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 explain some of the nuances so that people have a richer understanding of what that word means and how we measure it.
0: So, unfortunately, I can't actually give you an easy answer, and that's in part because there is heated debate about, in fact, what it is when we think about and measure happiness, and and that heated debate is in part, frankly, because some of the research within the field of so-called positive psychology is being done by psychologists, but a lot of the work is actually being done in the field of economics. And so different people are kind of bringing different perspectives to bear in terms of thinking about what is happiness. And in some cases that actually leads to really different explanations of what it is. So the example that I give, you know, very commonly is that if you ask women who do not work outside the home and have small children. Some of this is is Danny Kahneman's work. Uh, If you ask them how satisfied you are with your life, sort of broad contentment and meaning, they say, I love being a mom. I love my kids. This is all very meaningful. You know, I'm full of life satisfaction. If you ask these exact same women, how do you feel right this second when you are changing a diaper, picking Legos up off the kitchen floor, you know, et cetera, how are you feeling? They're not feeling so good, that their level of sort of joy and happiness is lower. And so one of the really interesting findings in the field of positive psychology is that we can think about happiness in this big, broad life satisfaction, contentment kind of way or we can think about it as this moment-to-moment experience of basic emotions. So things like, are you experiencing more joy than sadness? You know, are you experiencing pleasure versus you know, excitement, gratitude, pride, things like that?
1: And this is the distinction between, I think, what Kahneman called the thinking self and the remembering self, right? D- Danny Kahneman, yes. who won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for our listeners.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> who is a psychologist right. so we would like to that so let's just be clear um did did win the nobel prize um but but is a psychologist uh, by training and yes and that really sort of epitomizes the distinction and and it's not though that one is right and one is wrong so i think it's important to recognize that there's not a this is good and this is bad there's also really interesting research suggesting that even within the field of different kinds of emotions that you might experience, people who are wealthier versus people who are less wealthy also experience different kinds of emotions. Uh, some research suggests that people who are wealthier experience more what we call self-focused emotions, things like pride. And people who are lower in income feel more connection to other people, things like, for example, compassion. And so there's just really lots of interesting research being done in the field of what is happiness, how do we measure it, how do we define it, uh, how is it overall linked with different demographic, cultural factors, and so on.
1: Thank you for that. I love having you on because our listeners always write in and say, I learned so much. She's so good. And it's because you're a teacher. And so thank you for explaining these things. Why don't we start with something uh, that's probably on everyone's minds right now. Let's talk about spending money. And uh, and I'd like you to help us understand what the data says about how spending money on ourselves versus others impacts happiness. And then we'll, we'll get into some other areas of other care.
0: Yes. So, so this is one of the most interesting findings, is that it's not really how much money we have so much that seems to be predictive of well-being. It really seems to be how do we spend our time. And there's fascinating research being done by Ashley Williams at the Harvard Business School that actually has compared people who are spending money in ways that actually save them time and and that that in fact leads people to experience higher levels of happiness. This is often counterintuitive. So I want to just unpack it a little bit that I think many of us think well, you know, it'd be good to kind of be a little bit inconvenienced but you know, spend less on something even if that costs us more time. And what her research very compellingly illustrates in both experimental research and also uh, lab-based research but as well as real-world examples is that We actually feel happier when we buy ourselves some time. So one of my favorite examples, and this also feels uh, timely as the holidays are approaching, is that there's often a choice that we can make about having a direct flight somewhere that's a little bit more expensive Or having a flight that lands somewhere that has, you know, one or two stops and you end up spending, you know, four hours in Milwaukee, you know, or whatever. And you think, well, you know, that I really will save a couple hundred dollars, you know, et cetera. And so it seems like a wise, fiscally responsible decision to save that money and be a little bit more inconvenienced. And what her research shows again and again is that spending a little bit more money and saving yourself some time so you get, you know, four extra hours in, you know, Munich or wherever you're going is, is actually a better choice.
1: Can you explain why we might think that, why we might have a bias toward a lower price that we know is going to inconvenience us?
0: Well, one of the big things is that we have this assumption that having more money is going to lead to more happiness. So we have this assumption, well, you know, if I, if I'm inconvenienced, but then I have this extra money, I'm going to be able to do something with it. I'm going to, you know, be able to buy shoes or a purse or, you know, whatever. And that's going to really matter. Part of that research Again, comes from a lot of work suggesting that we also experience greater happiness when we spend money on experiences. So, experiences could be travel, but it could also be you know tickets to a Broadway show or a concert you've always wanted to see, you know tickets to the Super Bowl, you know, et cetera. That spending money on experiences is also again something that feels much better than spending money on belongings. And, and yet we often don't anticipate that, right? We think, well, you know, I'll go to see this play, but then it'll be over. Uh, Whereas if I'm spending money on belongings, I'll get to keep that, you know, purse or shoes or TV or car or whatever. So it's again, a way in which we're wrong.
1: How do we know if giving causes people to be happier, us giving causes people to be happier, or if, or if being happier causes people to give more, or does it work in both directions?
0: Yeah. So I love that question because that really is the kind of question that I push my students to think about all the time. So uh, a very famous study was done a number of years ago that examined the link between happiness and pro-social giving, so donating. And this was a cross-cultural study, which is really a strength because it's suggesting that this is a universal phenomenon. And what they found very clearly was that happiness and charitable giving are positively correlated. Now that leads to your question, right? Well, does that mean happy people give or giving makes people happy or, you know, wealthy people give and are also happy, et cetera. So then they did a follow up study and here's what they did. They brought in people, had them do a short little psychology study. And then half of them were told, here is a gift bag that you get to keep to thank you for coming in and doing the study. And the other half of people were told, here is a gift bag that we are going to donate to a local children's hospital to thank you for coming in. Then they measured happiness and you predict what they found. Who's happier? People get to keep the bag or the bag goes to the hospital.
1: The bag goes to the hospital.
0: <laughs> yeah, overwhelmingly, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just people, so again, this is, it's going to, it's going to hospital. It's a, it's a stranger, you know, you're not going to get any credit for it, et cetera. And yet people still felt happier when their bag was going to the hospital than when they got to keep this bag. So that would be an example of the kind of research suggesting that giving to other people. And again, in that case, it's a stranger. You're not expecting, you know, a reciprocal gift or whatever. It still led people to feel happier.
1: Yeah. Okay. So is it just giving things or spending money on other people that impacts our happiness? And what role does giving time play?
0: So one of the things that I love about this research on the power of giving is that honestly, it's giving anything. <laughs> so, so it's, it's donating to charity makes you feel happier. It's giving a random gift to a friend makes you feel happier. It's paying for the Starbucks order in the car behind you in line makes you happier. It's volunteering in your community makes you feel happier. It's donating blood that makes you feel happier. So the wonderful thing about giving is it's just very, very broad. And all of those things make us feel better.
1: So you sent us an article about the impact of having deeper conversation, even with strangers. Um uh, the impact that that can have on our happiness. Can you talk about how the conversations improve affect and why we're, we're usually apprehensive about anything more than small talk with people we don't know well? I know I am.
0: Well, and, and many people are, right? That's a, a sort of naturally human thing. And, and what was so fascinating about this study is it really demonstrated that, first of all, what makes us feel good is having deep, meaningful, authentic conversations with somebody, that having conversations in which we're being our real selves in which we're really being authentic and intimate, that it really feels good. But what's interesting is that we underestimate number one, how good it's going to feel. And two, we underestimate how good it feels to other people. So we think, well, maybe this is just me. And, and so what's interesting is that this is a case that actually, I think, harkens back to our very first conversation in March that, that illustrates the phenomenon that psychologists call pluralistic ignorance, right? We're misperceiving what other people are thinking and feeling. And so what's so interesting about this finding is that it suggests that telling people, hey, it makes you feel good, and it also makes other people feel good. is a wonderful way of increasing people's willingness to have these conversations that, in fact, feel really good.
1: So, have you ever done this with a stranger? I, it sounds like a very awkward thing. To, I love, I, first of all, I love having deep conversations with my friends, people I'm close to, people I trust to 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 bring their authentic selves to a conversation because there's just they're just so satisfying. There's nothing I like more than that. It's probably why I like podcasting so much, (laughs) Um, especially with people who care about ideas. Um, uh, But have you ever done this with a stranger?
0: Well, so I'm gonna say two things. Number one, I think you do this with a stranger all the time, okay, right? Uh, that's like, fair. You interview strangers, you and I were strangers, you know, we had a conversation. So so I first of all think you do it all the time. But second of all, I actually think lots of people do it all the time. Um, some of my favorite examples are Uber drivers, where you know, you'll get in the backseat of an Uber and all of a sudden you're like, you know, my girlfriend, she's far away and she did this, and what do you think? And you know, again, yeah. now my husband says sometimes I bring that out in people, but but I do think many of us can think about examples. A a very common example for many people, you sit on the plane with somebody who's a total stranger, but all of a sudden, you know, you're going six hours to LA and somebody says, you know, what do you do? And, you know, all of a sudden you're into this conversation. And I think many people... Now probably, I was going to say many people have had this experience. I actually imagine that wearing masks on planes probably inhibits that sort of conversation as I'm thinking about it. Yeah. But, but I think many of us have had the experience of, of being in some sort of random situation and all of a sudden you have some kind of intimate conversation with a stranger. And sometimes that can even feel kind of Safe, right? Because yeah. the plane's going to end; it's going to land, and you never have to see the person again. And I think many people can think about times in which they've had those conversations, and it's really felt great.
1: I know I have uh, had some conversations like that. They, they they always just seem to be perfectly spontaneous, like the, the the stars align with the person I happen to be sitting next to, and then. I have left some of those conversations feeling like really great about humanity, but it, but it, but it, does, it, it, it does wear off pretty quickly as soon as I open Twitter. Um.
0: <laughs> you, can, you can hang. You can hold on to that yeah. moment, right? You can totally. hold on to that moment. Totally. Yeah.
1: How about how giving can help us um, come out of not so great moods?
0: So, you know, giving can be instrumental. I mean, giving can be instrumental in a variety of different ways. And, and I think that, that, people have often experienced that in times in which they are really struggling and and giving to somebody else does a couple of different things. I think in some cases, you know, we often give to people who feel less fortunate than we are in some way, whether that's, you know, donating, you know, food or gifts to children in need or donating to charity and so on. So one thing is it's kind of a vivid reminder of this example of comparisons. I think you and I have spoken before about comparison is the thief of joy and 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 one of the key findings is that in many cases when we're on social media we're doing all of this kind of social comparison of oh everybody else's life looks so great and you know they're having all this fun with you know friends or travel or you know academic success or professional success or whatever it can make people feel worse. Giving to somebody else is a way of saying oh my goodness you know I am in a fortunate situation and it kind of pulls us out of this uh, comparison that can be harmful. I think also there is key research suggesting that giving actually feels good in the brain. Mm. So there is really interesting research in neuroscience in which they brought in people, put them in an fMRI machine and had them think about giving a gift to a friend. And if you just think about giving a gift to a friend, it activates a particular part of the brain that processes rewarding experiences. The exact same part of the brain that is activated when you eat chocolate um, or also use cocaine, but that's, you know, like a less, you know, advisable uh, sort of strategy. (laughs)
1: So, okay, I was going to ask you about this. So we're talking about, uh, we're talking about giving because of the benefits that it can create for us as the givers, as individuals. And that was the interesting thing about this, um, this, this the article that I shared on Instagram because all of the sort of culture around giving – uh, let's take Giving Tuesday for example. It all seems to be based on this idea of uh, of an altruistic intention, of sacrifice, some kind of self sacrifice, like that. That the giving has to make us unhappy in order for it to be meaningful for someone else. And I, it seems to me that we're just missing a massive opportunity to increase giving, increase the good that people can do with their time, with their money, with their conversations. If we were to elevate the benefits that come from giving to, to the person who's actually giving. And I don't know, there's a couple of threads I want to unravel here, but one of them is what, why, why do we have that impulse in the first place? Why do we think that it has to cost us something that we, we have to be unhappy in order to help make other people happier to, to, to give. And, and then we, maybe we can talk about how we might change that, but why do why do we have that impulse in the first place?
0: So one of the interesting debates, and I actually literally just taught about this um, in my social psychology class on Monday, there's an interesting debate historically in the field of social psychology about what motivates giving. And there's one school of thought that says giving is really motivated by empathy. So if you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes, then you really see the world you know, through their perspective and you are much more likely you know, to step up and help in a variety of different kinds of situations. Then there's another school of thought that really says giving is motivated by self-focused concerns. It's really an egoistic model. And that says, when we give, we're actually experiencing a boost. And you know what? That's why we're motivated to give. It's not to make somebody else feel good. It's actually to make ourselves feel good. But the challenge is, and I forced my students to kind of play through this uh, in class on, on Monday. And that is that it's very, very hard to disentangle those effects because here's what we know. We know that giving, of course, does make somebody else feel good, but giving also makes us feel good. Um, I, I want to ask now, and we haven't talked about this, but there was an article that was in the New York Times Magazine, I'm going to say a couple of weeks ago, that was about a person i'm i'm going to forget the person's name but it was about a kidney donation. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was about I haven't um, seen it. Okay, it was a really interesting article it's, um New York Times magazine and it was called Who is the bad art friend. Okay, who's, that was who's the author. Stuff. Um well the author of the piece is Robert Kolker.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: but but here's what was interesting. It it it's an entire story about a person who donated a kidney. And and then talked about that donation in her social media. And then some other people thought it was sort of self-promoting, you know, that that you were sort of like, oh, look at me, you know, I'm so good, et cetera. And then actually wrote a story about that. And it became kind of this fight between two authors. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to, you know, ruin the punchline for, for your listeners. But But here's what was so interesting. There was a heated debate about it in part because, you know what we want? We want people to donate kidneys. Yes, and, yes exactly. Right? That's what I'm thinking. Like, this is insane. If She gave a kidney. <laughs> well, no, and that was part of the issue. And, and the idea is if you're getting that kidney... You do not care. care. (laughs) Self-promote away. Self-promote away. Right? You're not like I. You know what? I'm going to turn it down because I think you kind of did it for egoistic motives. Right? I'm still getting the kid be. and so that was such an interesting. uh, Anyway, I think I think you'll really enjoy the piece. It was a really interesting, you know, article that that went back and forth. Um, but again, uh, two authors. You know, there's probably not a right and a wrong and whatever. But but here's what I was going to say. I'm going to now tell a personal story. Um, so um i don't know 8 or 9 years ago i donated bone marrow to a stranger and and i donated bone marrow to a stranger in, entirely honestly accidentally um my my cousin lost her son parker when he was 8 years old and he would had leukemia it, it was mm. absolutely tragic um you know little boy i had you know kids the same age and at his funeral she said I don't want money, I don't want teddy bears, I don't want flowers. I want people to sign up for the bone marrow registry because if if Parker had, had a match he would be alive. So I immediately went out and did the cheek swab and and you know put it in and, and then I didn't really think about it at all, you know for for 5 or 6 years and then I got a call saying I was a match to somebody, you know when would I would I go in and donate? So I went in and did it, but the but the point is that What I remember (laughs) is I was being wheeled in for them to put a little, you know, like port in my clavicle or something. Um, I'm being wheeled in and there are two nurses walking and one of the nurses nurses says to me, this is so great what you're doing, you know, and I'm so sorry about your loved one, you know, who's in need of this, you know, this um, donation. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh no, it's not. A, it's a stranger. I don't know the person. you like, don't feel sorry for me at all. It's, you know, I'm, it's not my kid or, you know, my husband, you know, it's not, it's not from anyone I know. And then the other nurse is wheeling goes, I'm so jealous. I've been on that registry for so long and I've never gotten matched. And I was like, you know, I feel so lucky. And that's the whole point of my story is that I felt lucky. I felt so lucky that I had matched because so many people wait for years to get a match and they don't get matched. And and again, I'm certain it made somebody feel good that they, you know, got my matched bone marrow. Yeah. But it also I made you feel good. You, it made me feel so good. <laughs> and I left the hospital, um, you know, and I just felt I just felt great. I mean, it was like one of the best days of my life. Wow. And and I and that's how I feel. I feel super lucky.
1: That is so cool but we but but we but we have this hmm, i want to know where it comes from i want to know where 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 the urge comes from to say that because someone takes gets gets some kind sort of satisfaction or joy or personal benefit from giving that we suddenly think that that giving is worthless socially well, like, there's that, that's but a, I think there's a there's a fight between these two authors right this kind of evidence of the yeah
0: absolutely right well and i think you know again harkening back to some of our earlier conversations i think there is absolutely a sense, and and maybe this is human nature in some way, of that things are a zero sum game, right? So, so if I give you something, then I do not have it. So if I give you a kidney, then I do not have that kidney. If I give you twenty dollars, then I do not have that twenty dollars. So I think there's is this broad sense that if we talk about finite resources, in a sense, of course, you know there there is a zero sum game, but but in so many cases. There's not a zero sum game, right? It's good for everybody. If, if we publicize kidney donations, um, I made more bone marrow, you you know, a week later and, and, you know, I'm not absent bone marrow now, you know, for the rest of my life or whatever. and, and, to some extent, you know, I, I think this is really interesting in terms of what's playing out right now in politics, in that you had all these Republicans who had been so in favor of infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the kind of running joke. It's infrastructure week. It's infrastructure week. All these Republicans who now voted against, you know, roads and bridges and broadband, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, mm-hmm. because if it's good for the Democrats, it must be bad for me. Yeah. And so the, the challenge is that I think that, you know, healthcare is good for everyone. Roads pretty much good for everyone. Broadband pretty much good for everyone. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing to to drive on a road or to use the internet. And, and so I think you know part of it really becomes this idea that if I'm doing something for someone else, then I am losing in that proposition, and that is so sad.
1: Totally true. This also reminds me of Simon Sinek's uh, "The Infinite Game" and the way he. It's very similar to the way he talks about this. You familiar with him and his work?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, yes we don't have to Behavioral go into it. yeah around us. yeah <laughs> i mean it's 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 um it's re- it's it's really really great let's talk about um what we can do to destigmatize the self benefit that comes from giving how can we help people see that it doesn't there are there are actually truly win-wins here when the pie there that we can continue expanding the pie right of of happiness here and how do we sort of get that get people to shift that mindset
0: so i mean honestly i think that part of it is reframing how we think about I mean, to be honest, people think about this as, you know, sort of virtue signaling, right? So look at me, you know, I'm doing... And that, again, was very much the case of the who is the bad art friend, the idea that I'm going to publicize, you know, doing this this kind act. And the problem is, as soon as when people sort of doubt the motivations for it, all of a sudden it becomes, oh, well, this isn't really worthy. Like, you are doing this to be able to post about it on social media. I, I know there was lots of concern, you know, 18 months ago in which people were saying, well, Blackout Tuesday, you know, and I'm going to, you know, post about, you know, donating to uh, the NAACP or George Floyd's, you know, family or, you know, so on. And a number of people said, you know, this is really, you know, virtue signaling and it's not really reflecting a genuine concern in terms of racial equality or, you know, or justice in that sense. And I think the challenge is, is that. For some people, it can be taking a step in the right direction, and that step in the right direction can still be valuable. Um, even if you are virtue signaling by saying, I donated a kidney or I donated to the NAACP, you still are donating that kidney. You still are donating, yeah. making that donation, and that is still a good and beneficial thing, even if it also has this uh, – unintended or maybe intended consequence of being self-promoting. And I think that, I think it becomes very tricky because in some cases, of course, we are getting multiple benefits. Yeah. Right. Right? right.
1: Yeah. But that money still spends.
0: No, that, that money still spends. And, and I think that's one of the challenges is if people are reluctant to say, oh, well, you know, I can't do this because it's not going to seem, you know, sincere or genuine. Uh, it's really problematic in that sense. There's a, there's a funny New Yorker cartoon that I show my students in, in one of my classes. And it's a guy trying to pick up a woman in a bar. And, and he's saying, you know, all those anonymous donations to charity, that was me. You know, and again, that's an example of sort of saying like this is how I'm 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 donating to charity in order to get credit, you know, for it in that sense. But again, the money still matters.
1: But it's really just a great pickup line. I mean, even if it's It's just a great pickup line,
0: good for him. (laughs) You can use this this now. So there you go. Yeah.
1: Okay. I am curious how this played out in your classroom with your students. And I also want to know if it's if it it does it have to be the case that motivation for giving has to be one or the other?
0: No, it does not. And I think that's what, you know, and, and I guess it it feels very uh, familiar to college students because, you know, this is, college students are all familiar with writing that 650-word essay to get into college. And many of them talk about, oh, well, you know, I went to the Dominican Republic and I helped build a house or, you know, I volunteered in a soup kitchen or I, you know, did whatever. And And again, the issue is, getting into a sense of giving matters is meaningful and getting into a habit of volunteering or donating to charity, that all of those are things that are positive and are pro-social and can do good in the community and also can make people feel good about themselves, that it really can be a win-win.
1: You write about how giving thanks is a powerful way to increase happiness. Can you talk about the gratitude letter strategy and why we don't always express our gratitude?
0: Yes, I'm I'm so glad that you asked about this question because this is one of, of, of the key findings that so often people do not express to other people around them what they have meant to them until the eulogy, that we do it when people have died. And there's a wonderful exercise that came from Marty Seligman, a professor at Penn, who actually has people sit down and write a letter to somebody who has changed and shaped their life in a meaningful way. And then you travel to that person and you stand in front of them and you read the letter aloud. And as you can imagine, that's a super powerful experience for the person who's reading the letter and a super powerful experience for the person who is hearing the letter. And and that's just a super simple example of how we can all just take a small moment to do that if there are people in our lives who've played that role. And we often, research shows, we underestimate how meaningful hearing those words will be, and so many of us present company included, have failed to tell people what they meant to them until it's too late so I'm so glad that you gave me the opportunity to share that
1: i i I can think of a dozen people I would love to do that with in my life have you ever have you ever tried it? Have you ever experienced it?
0: well, so I'm going to say um, a couple things so one, when I think about The person who played that role in my life, that the single person who is most responsible for playing that role in my own life, it was my seventh and eighth grade English teacher, Mr. Doherty. Mr. Doherty was a Marine in World War II and he had lost his right arm picking up a grenade. So he had this like stump and this big like silver metal hook that strapped around his whole body. Uh, And this will, this will date me for your listeners, but I went to public school and Mr. Doherty smoked throughout the entire day in the classroom, which I'm 100% certain could never happen anymore. <laughs> but he would smoke with a with cigarette clutched between, you know, this claw kind of thing. Anyway, he was terrifying. He had this hook, this, you know, claw, this smoke. He was big, you know, red, and marine. He was terrifying. But every paper that I did for Mr. Doherty, and I had him for two years, every paper he Covered in red, you know. Unpack, organize, expand, detail, and I spent two years with Mr. Doherty, and I, I'm talking to you today because I've written some books, mm-hmm. and the only way that I would have ever written a book is Mr. Doherty. It's the only way, and so you know, I have I have degrees from Stanford and Princeton. Those are completely irrelevant. Um, it's Mr. Doherty, and <laughs> uh, and when I learned that Mr. Doherty had died, I wrote his widow a letter and I told her but I never told him wow. while he was alive and and that honestly is one of the things that that super haunts me because you know he does not know uh, what an impact he had on my career. And so I say to students all the time, you know, you should express, you know, what people have meant to you. And so I have now gotten much better at expressing people who've made a major role in my career, you know, in some way, but the person who I think of as single-handedly most responsible, um, is Mr. Doherty. And I failed to do so.
1: Wow. It reminds me of the, of the tradition of death meditation and stoicism which I've tried a few times cuz I I I wouldn't say I'm a stoic but I I do appreciate reading a lot of the this about the stoic tradition um, uh, it it seems like something that would be pr- really profound uh, to do and I and I yeah I'm I'm going to think I'm going to think about doing that this season man this is so powerful
0: well, you've also now outed um, to me and, and to your listeners that that you have. what Did you say eleven or twelve people that you need to write yeah. a or letter? Two letters. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah,
0: right. So, so I think I think maybe we should remind you about that periodically <laughs> in this holiday season. Um, the next time you're on a plane, are yeah. um, writing.
1: Yeah, I hope my therapist is not listening to this because he will definitely hope be accountable to
0: that. Uh, <laughs> um,
1: okay. Um, what are some of the other ways? of giving that improve happiness? What haven't we talked about that we should be talking about, Catherine?
0: So, you know, to me, I think that that what's really important is that people give in a way that feels meaningful to them. And, and so this means it's not one size fits all. Uh, so my family has a tradition, which we've started pretty recently. I've got three kids and we talk about What are the causes that you care about? And let's think about how we're allocating family donations, you know, end of year uh, tax donations to different kinds of organizations. And, I think that the most meaningful giving is giving that has a personal relevance to you. So that could be, you know, the college or university you attended. A lot of people do that. But it could also be about an organization or a cause that you care about. And that could be about climate change. It could be about gun control. It could be, you know, politics. It, but it could be, you know, anything. And so really thinking about what is meaningful to you and choosing to donate, again, time or money to organizations that matter to you you in some way. And to me, it's important to recognize that what is personal to each of us will differ. So there's not, you know, this is the right way to do it, but it's really thinking about what matters to you in some way. And how do you want to make a difference?
1: Or it could be giving a kidney.
0: <laughs> it giving a kidney. It could be giving a kidney. And you know what, that even if you self-promote about it, <laughs> it's, it's welcome.
1: You talk about this material a lot, obviously as an author is there any question that you haven't been asked about this stuff that you wish would come up more often or that, that that no one's asked you yet um, or that maybe you don't get an opportunity to talk about as often as you'd like?
0: So, you know, to me, the most important finding in, in the literature and the thing that I think is most important to talk about is really that any small act can matter. Any small act can matter. And, and to me, that's understanding of finding ways in our own daily lives of trying to make a difference is meaningful and it expresses intentionality. So I, I'm gonna give a, a a very brief, again, another example. I have a dear friend um who is in treatment for cancer and what I have decided to do, and I'm hoping that she is not listening, I think she's probably not listening. She has enough on her plate. Um, but what I am doing is I am sending her flowers Every day that she has chemo. So she had chemo last Wednesday was her next round. And I'd ask her at some point, I'm like, can you just tell me, you know, the, the, you know, the dates and what she doesn't know. This is why I don't want her to be listening is that I just put them in my calendar and I'm just going to have flowers sent. That's what I'm doing. So it's a tiny thing. It's, you know, not being a hero. It's not giving a kidney. Um, but it's, I know it's going to be a really hard day for her and I'd like her to just come home and just look at something pretty. And, and so to me, it's the example of there are very, very small things that we can do in our daily lives that can make a difference. We've all heard, I think, stories about, you know, cars paying for the, the next car behind and the next car behind and the next car behind. You know, that's an example, again, of things that are very small. One of my favorite coffee shops, and I'll do a shout out to them, is yeah. called How You Brew It. Okay, How You Brew It. <laughs> it's on um, Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Um, and and what they have at the very front of the, by the cash register is they have all of these different donations that people have made, which is a coffee or a pastry or whatever to a certain person. So it'll be like, you know, if you're a firefighter, take this slip and this coffee has been paid for for you. If you are a teacher grading, take this coffee and it's treated for you. If you are somebody who has lost a loved one, take this coffee, it is for you. And there are all these things. And so you can just go in and be like, I want to do this you know, for a person having chemotherapy or a person who's grieving the loss of their spouse or whatever. Isn't that lovely?
1: That is beautiful. I love that. I would take a road trip just to go see that coffee shop. That's cool. It's called
0: How You Bruin. Um, It's on Long Beach Island, New Jersey. And every time I'm there, I just see this board and it makes me happy. And again, this is not you know, donating a building or a kidney or anything. It's two bucks. Yeah. You know, your coffee is free. If you're a firefighter, you know, whatever. And, but it just makes me so happy. And it's just a simple example of, of how we can make a small difference in all of these different ways. That's a
1: beautiful place to leave it. Catherine, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet, follow your work, find your books?
0: Um, so I have a website, Sandersonspeaking.com, and I'm on Twitter at SandersonSpeaks and Instagram at SandersonSpeaking.
1: And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of politicology plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond,